from the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. It's the Craig Needles Podcast. It is the Friday Roundtable, and we are joined here in our downtown studios at Blackburn Media by former city councilor John Five Miller. We're joined by PhD candidate AJ Ray and former Green Party candidate Carol Deck. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. Hello. Hello, hello. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, uh, John, uh, pinch hitting show, but Asharma was going to be here. I asked John uh, on a whim last night, like, hey, does he have a free Friday? And yes, you do. So thank you very much for doing that. I appreciate you coming in. Not a problem. Thanks for the offer. Uh, let's let's get started by talking about social assistance. And that was something that I kind of made into my own topic this week because <laughs> uh, we had a couple of uh, provincial cabinet ministers who were, who were here. Monty McNaughton was here, and so was Steve Clark, and the ministers of labor and uh, municipal affairs, respectively. They both have other things with their title, but for the purpose of this conversation, that's who we're talking about. And they wanted to talk about investment that the province was making in homelessness in the city of London. They're bumping up what they get for their homelessness fund by uh, $8 million, which, you know, that's good. That's helpful. However, I think that if we're not talking about social assistance when it comes to homelessness, when it comes to poverty, we're talking about the wrong stuff. Carol, what was your reaction to what we heard uh, on the, the previous episode of this podcast and, and, and from the ministers this yeah, week? Yeah, so, I mean, first off, I would say it's great that we are getting more money, but I still feel like it's a Band-Aid solution. Um, we're just still throwing money at something without addressing the core issues. So for me, of course, that would be doubling ODSP, making sure that people aren't living in legislated poverty. I mean, obviously, I would like to go even further with that. I really feel like Canada is ready for a basic guaranteed income. Um, we're seeing particularly with children right now, uh, what they are really affected by Um, food insecurity, housing insecurity, and this is going to create huge problems later on. So if we aren't addressing the core issues right now, we are creating larger problems that are going to be more expensive in the future. And just on a humanitarian basis, we really should be doing better for people. And, you know, $8 million is great, but we can see that we're having this ongoing crisis on our streets. um, And there's going to be more people that are moving onto the streets without greater social assistance. AJ, I know that you and I have talked about this a little bit before, but what yeah. are your thoughts? I, I mean, from my perspective, it's it's just disgusting how low these rates are now. And what was really frustrating for me was in the last election, the Green Party was the only party that actually had a plan to increase rates. And, you know, I am a progressive conservative, and I'm disappointed in how the current governing party is treating these rates. I think we have to have a real conversation about where we fund this and have a real conversation about if the benefits are going to the right people. I'll remind you in, in you know, sort of the last conversation of the Ontario Trillium benefit. I suspect there's a lot of people that get a $340 check once a year on their tax return. And yeah, it's nice, you know, mm-hmm. you get an extra $340 surprise in July every year from, you know, the provincial government. But um, if we were to take all those people that are getting those $340 checks, and put that money into doubling ODSP, doubling Ontario Works. And also, when we talk about the federal conversation about clawbacks, uh, with Pierre's uh, statements about how, you know, for every extra dollar people are working, they lose 51 cents, I would like some sort of thought process to be applied, again, at the provincial level with Ontario Works in particular, of let's stop clawing back so much when people do get stable employment on Ontario Works. It's a good thing that they have that employment. Who cares if they're making a little bit more money? 
that's where that money is going to go to support people. And from me, I think it's just the right thing to do. And I wish we could come to some sort of agreement across the spectrum. And perhaps it is changing in the next election that we will be able to reach that mm-hmm. agreement by the next election. Yeah. John, what do you think? Yeah, I would I would agree with that statement. I, I think one of the big challenges that we're not addressing right now is I think Ontario Works and I think ODSP are completely broken. And I think what we're trying to do over and over again is tweak it to make it work when it's a system that was created, what, the better part of two and a half decades ago, which suited suited the time. It doesn't suit today. And I think we need to address that. I think uh, one of the comments, and, and I would agree 100% with the clawback piece, I think if we really want to see a big change, it's allowing people to get themselves out of poverty. If we can allow people to get themselves out of poverty, I think it's not just the social impact, but it's the psychological impact. And I think part of that psychological impact is being able to say, I can make this much money before I'm going to get taxed at all on it. And why shouldn't that be an amount that I can actually live on with my family? Uh, Carol's point's right. I, I think the $8 million is great, but the $8 million is also dealing with a very specific component in society right now. Mm-hmm. It's not going to help somebody who's struggling with a family in a one-bedroom house trying to figure out how they're going to pay their heat and hydro. Yeah, mm-hmm. and food. I mean, yeah. That, yeah. that's the other big thing yep. here is this, yep. this $8 million does nothing to help people with food. And yep. neither did the federal government's announcement in the last budget to, you know, give everyone an extra $200 yep. going to help on the cost of food. Absolutely. And I think that's where we – you're exactly right. These programs need to be rethought. But I think the concept of supporting people at the bottom and providing them the tools to lift themselves out of poverty – Or also recognizing that there are some people that just generally need our support Mm -hmm. on a day-to-day basis and we need to develop a society in which they can survive and live, Mm -hmm. I think is a laudable goal for all of us. And here's the thing, that's that's a belief that's held in in a lot of different spots in the political spectrum, but just hasn't become a mainstream view amongst people who have significant sway at Queen's Park in the last 25 years or 30 years or whatever it's been since night, well, how almost 30 years since 1995. Uh, but there are conservatives that would tell you, oh yeah, no, not necessarily basic income as a concept, but the idea of, hey, if we have people, the fewer people that are kind of scraping by every single month to make ends meet, we're going to see better outcomes in the justice system and better outcomes in the healthcare system. That is not some like far off left wing mm-hmm. position at this point in our lives. That, yeah. that, that I think should be pretty mainstream. Absolutely. I think it should be mainstream. I mean, I did some work with children a few years back. And these were children that were from lower income families. And you can tell right away they are smaller because they are not getting the same nutritional benefit. They struggle more in school. There's more behavioral problems. But it's because what child can learn in school if they are hungry? And also just dealing with monetary issues within families creates a huge amount of stress that can lead to domestic abuse. There's lots of studies that have shown this. Well, that's creating trauma for children that are coming up through this system. And again, you're going to be dealing with a problem that you're going to have to throw more money to. So yeah, this $8 million, it targets one issue, but we really should be looking at it much more holistically and widely so that we are addressing all these issues. So it's not constantly a Band-Aid solution. And, you know, $8 million here doesn't really solve the problem. No, it doesn't. The problem (laughs) is provincial. The problem is federal. It's it's a problem that needs to be solved by a whole of government approach. Mm -hmm. And the other problem is we're we're seeing it 
get hidden. It's it's actually being hidden by our justice system, by the healthcare system. Mm. That is where when these things do go wrong, that's where these people end up getting mm-hmm. the support that they finally need, but it's not the right support. Yeah. It's way too costly, and it doesn't result in actual any long-term change for these people. Yeah. And, and something that I'll note is I think that we're seeing more and more municipal politicians get on board with this. Uh, John, when you when you were there, I, I don't think that there would have been a single one of your colleagues that would have said no to the idea of, hey, we should probably increase Ontario Works and ODSP. That, that would be a direct instant benefit for the city of London. Absolutely. And I think for my colleagues when I was there, most of the conversation was around when we talked about homelessness is what is the major issue? The major issue is people are not allowed to make enough money to support mm-hmm. their, their selves or their family. Right. Mm-hmm. And so just the, the rules are archaic. The number of dollars that you receive, it's, 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 it's just way too low. And there needs to be a fix here. I'm just wondering when the political will for this fix is going to happen. Because I, I don't know if it's this group. It's, so, it's got to so happen it, yeah. within the parties themselves. Like, yeah. this is my thing with people is, and, you know, present company excluded, <laughs> I get frustrated with a lot of people when they say these things have to change, but then they're not getting engaged with an actual political party. They're not getting engaged with the political system. And that is where the change is going to come from. You have to be loud and you have to make it clear that for someone to be elected as an MPP or a party to be able to gain a majority to govern, needs to focus on this issue. And I, I think we'll see it come, actually, because, um, you know, it, it's vis- it's too visible now. Yeah. I think this is the problem. People can't shuffle it under the rug. And I think it's going to change the broad political consensus or the broad population will recognize that someone has to do something about this issue. Yeah. What I think is key, and I know everyone hears me say this over and over and over again, we really need electoral reform. Because until we start having more of a proportional system, we will not have parties working together towards long-term goals. We're constantly going to be having this pendulum swing backwards and forwards, and we're never going to get anywhere. Because when there is extreme partisanship, which we are particularly seeing right now, nothing gets solved. So we need to change our electoral system so that we can work together for solutions that are looking 10, 20, 30 years, 50 years forward, not just every four-year cycle. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I also think that what we need to do is we need to look at it and sell it on the benefits of it. And I think we're not good at that. I think think when we look at this type of reform and I think when we look at at this situation as as a good example, we sell it more on the look at the negativity that's here. We've got to change that. We've got to look at it from a community perspective of here's going to be the benefits overall to the community if we change this holistically. And I think that's really important because I think we get away from that. And I think we get so locked in sometimes to conversations that aren't beneficial instead of looking at those conversations and converting those conversations to say they are. We all come from different parties. But this is something we can agree on. If we're mm-hmm. sitting in a room, we're going to agree on this and have a coffee. The question is, how do we get there? Yeah. yeah. And I think that's that's the biggest challenge, as, yeah. as you've identified in Canada, is just our system is not designed to do that at the moment. Our parties are designed in a way that explicitly excludes that. You know, we're pretty much allergic to the idea of even a coalition government mm-hmm. governing in a minority situation. And that's where... 
I think, you know, you won't hear an argument from me and I think a lot of young progressive conservatives. I mean, we elect our own party leaders by ranked ballots. Yeah. Why can't we apply that system yeah. uh, broadly to the electoral, uh, broader electoral system? And so I think that's where, you know, there, there's that broad structural change. But I do agree with John on we got to talk about the benefits here. And I think a lot of fiscal conservatives are going to love to hear about the benefits of actually solving this problem. And we need to figure out how to reach them. That's the thing. Like when I'm knocking on doors, I always talk about specifically with the conservatives what the economic benefits of certain proactive measures are. If you are going to actually get money back by investing a little bit, why would you not do that? It just does not make sense. Exactly. And when it pays dividends, that's when people love it. 100%. Yeah, I I think that there's going to have to be kind of, I don't know what what words to use to describe it, but there's got to be municipal politicians getting on board and putting the pressure on their provincial counterparts to say, hey, look, this is causing a problem for us in our municipalities. This is making it harder for us to manage the city of London, Kitchener, Toronto, Hamilton, wherever it is. And you've got to do something about it. Yeah. That, that to me is, is yeah. going to have to be part of the conversation here. All these things that, that, that you've talked about here are, are, are definitely on the list, but I think that's going to have to be a big part of it is, hey, this is becoming really, really hard for us. And you know who else I think could or should be uh, part of this conversation as well is I think people who are in policing. Because when we hear about struggles with mental health and struggles with police uh, being dispatched to situations where there are you know, people who are in poverty, who I don't think police officers want to be dealing with those situations. I don't think we want police officers dealing with those situations. Uh, I think they've got a, a role in this where they say, hey, this is a problem that we have noticed on our streets and you, people who are making the political decisions, have to do something about it. Yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. part of it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, let's uh, shift gears now and talk about something that's sort of in the same vein, but not. And I want to talk about a discussion that happened at London City Hall this week, which it's kind of got bizarre. We'll talk about it in a second. But uh, the conversation surrounding Safe Space, which is an organization in London that uh, is aimed at assisting uh, women, uh, for the most part, who uh, are of, of, of high risk uh, or uh, having you know, it's some work in the sex trade. Anyway, you know, you know what Safe Space is. You don't need me to tell you. But there was a conversation about diverting $325,000 of funding that was going to go to Safe Space to other organizations. That wound up losing 15 to 0 at council. But but it was kind of a weird situation where the motion was made by Susan Stevenson. It was seconded by Jerry Pribble. And then it kind of became clear that it wasn't going to pass. It just, it, it just, it just felt like it was not handled very well. To me, I think there is a conversation to be had surrounding, hey, how do we fund social services in the city of London? But it's got to be a, a conversation that's targeted and like just, yeah, you have to have an idea as to how you're going to handle it. That, this, this kind of felt a little helter-skelter to me. What do you think, AJ? I, I mean, for me, it's it's really challenging because you have this organization that is trying to do good work and is trying to serve a population that we often ignore. I mean, the fact is, Craig, you weren't even comfortable to say the word sex work. These women work in sex work. Yeah, that, yeah, sorry. That's fair enough. That, I, I, I could have said that. Yes. We need to understand. Did I say sex trade? Either way, did, but yes. Yeah. Okay. But what I'm saying is we, yeah. we have this uncomfortableness around that type of work. And it is work, and it's incredibly high-risk work right now in Canada, and these women deserve support. Now, Safe Space as an organization, there may be some operational challenges that are happening right now. 
Do I think it needed a voice at the council table and needed to be targeted and raised that way? Absolutely not. This is something that should have been a private conversation with bylaw enforcement and safe space. This should have been something that was trying to figure out what are the challenges and how do we address them? How do we better support this organization so that we can provide 24-hour support so that there isn't this cycle of people coming in and then people be getting kicked out? And then that is one of the biggest problems right now on Dundas in Old East is you have so many organizations trying to do so much with so limited resources that you just have this cycle of people popping in and out of doors in and out of doors and it creates chaos along the street. And I do know there are residents that I work with that are very frustrated with the entire situation. But you are exactly right, Craig. This is a conversation that needs to be had broadly yeah. at the city level of how we fund social services, how we support them, and maybe a conversation about stop taking birdshot and hoping you're going to hit something and solve a problem. Yeah, because I'm all for accountability for spending and, hey, uh, organizations have to meet certain markers and we can have conversations about that. That's fine. It didn't come off to me as though that's what this was. This was, hey, this is the organization that I don't like for whatever reason, so we're going to talk about that. John, what, what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I so I think AJ kind of hit the nail on the head on, on some of the situation. I, I think there's a, a broader conversation here. And I'm going to say as a counselor, I would be, I'm going to say fully accurate to say there are questions that you ask that are coming from your constituents and you want that asked in a public realm. It's that's because that's their expectation at the end Absolutely. of the day. Yeah. That said, I think the the I think it's a broader conversation, as AJ said, on social services. How do we deal with social social services and how do we hold them accountable to the commitments that they make to the community? And I think first and foremost, it's not just the commitments to city of London taxpayers. It's the commitments that they're making to the individuals that they're taking care of. Because if I'm going to tell you I'm going to be here and I'm going to put in 24-hour care, I think as an individual using that space, that's my expectation at the end of the day. I think that's key. I think the other issue that we have there, though, and I and I think, I think safe space was unfairly targeted because of the situation right now in Old East Village. Yeah. Old East Village is completely saturated mm -hmm. in social service agencies. Yep. The neighbors are frustrated. The businesses are frustrated. Now you've got a counselor who's taking all of those calls. I do think the conversation has to be had, but that conversation should have been had separately off of the council. And, and just like, if we're going to have it, you've got to do it right. Yeah. 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 Carol, what were your thoughts? On well, that? so, I mean, I'm just going to echo a lot of what has already been said. I really, there obviously has to be some discussion about accountability, but that could have been a broader conversation talking about the whole system and everybody. But this seemed extremely targeted. There's still questions about whether or not they actually agreed to offer 24-7 service. And that seems like that wasn't actually in the works. That's very difficult for any volunteer organization to put together. Most of the the organizations in the city aren't able to offer 24-7 care. I mean, there's only so many resources. So it should have been more a conversation about how can we help these organizations deliver these services rather than trying to direct $325,000 away from an organization that is trying very hard to provide a very specific service for an extremely vulnerable group. And, you know, there was things that have been posted on social media that make it seem much more like it was a, a personal 
attack against this one organization. And that is extremely problematic when we have just been discussing how we have a major problem in the city and we should be working together to help the most vulnerable. And this did not seem like that was what was going on. And, and here's the thing. So it was their concern because the safe space said, hey, we're going to need this number of dollars and we think we can have 24 hour service. And then some things got in the way. I don't think it was a matter of anyone at safe space saying, eh, we don't want to do that anymore. Yeah, exactly. That wasn't, that no, wasn't. It's, it's purely a resource. Yeah. 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 I think that. I also think, though, there needs to be a vehicle for organizations to come back to council and report back on their status. I agree. And, mm-hmm. and I think because I think part of it, so much of what you hear happen is hearsay. Mm-hmm. So much of it, you're talking to people on the street, you're talking to neighbors. But why don't we create a vehicle where organizations that get, get funding come back? Talk to us about what mm-hmm. worked. Talk to us about what didn't work and why didn't it work. What can we do better? But I think yeah. those conversations are really important because it allows, I think uh, Councillor Peloza said, there's not a professional at this table that understands this, but they're smart enough to take the information in from people who do understand it and then make much more informed decisions moving forward. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think there is a, a real need for a broader conversation about a social service agency policy for any agency that's pulling funding from the city there is some sort of policy and expectation set around minimum levels of service so when Mm -hmm. the community knows that there is an agency that's opening within their neighborhood that there are some standards that are being applied and that these entities will be held to and required to report back on and i'm not trying to you know close out these agencies through you know death by a thousand cuts of bureaucracy It's that John's spot on in that people in Old East in particular are broadly frustrated that for a long time that neighborhood has been disenfranchised in order to make it convenient to dump people there. Yes. What I want to be clear, and I see it all the time, is there's this misconception that Old East for some reason just magically people sprout up out of the ground there with poverty and it's no it's a very conscious effort that started in the 70s by locating the provincial offenses court by locating the intercommunity health center together in that neighborhood and then all of a sudden you had this pile in of all these social service agencies again trying to do the right thing but there's a difference between trying and actually ending up having a good outcome and I think that's where there's a real challenge of how do we how do we pull that concentration out? And I think the mayor's plan of opening these neighborhood resource hubs still don't have a plan of what that's actually going to look like. But I think that is it's an idea. So let's yeah. let's try it instead yeah. of, you know, continuing to fight over this hearsay of, of who said what and personal attacks on each other. And, I, you know, I. I feel a little bit sorry for Councillor Stevenson because she's trying to represent a voice, but then she's also butting up against, you know, some really challenging scenarios and perhaps not getting the words right and not getting the 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 feeling right in regards to actually addressing some of the challenges. And and, and here's the thing. This was always going to be a controversial motion. What the the part that didn't not, not I don't even say it didn't sit well, but it just it was clear there wasn't a whole lot of planning here. No, because the other counselors around the table were like, "We're not going to do this." Yeah. You know, like, why was yeah. why was it not just ask for a report on the bylaw issues in Old East? 
Yeah. yeah. Like just yeah. ask staff to yeah. come back with a summary report. They have the data through the Main Street Ambassadors program as well as bylaw themselves. Yeah. Like there is data that sits oh, yeah. in the city. I would love to see council motion for a report to bring that out in public because I think it would be eye-opening for Londoners to understand the everyday challenges that we have in the core area. I, I, I would agree. And I think I think even taking that further, and I think it's changing now, but let's be perfectly honest, through COVID, there were a lot of people in City Hall that reported on COVID in the downtown core not being here for two years. Yeah. And mm-hmm. let's be honest, the last three years in downtown and the last three years in the core, things have changed exponentially. They've changed yeah. quickly. Yes. Yeah. And they have changed exponentially. When you're in Byron and you don't come downtown, I have an issue with you reporting back to me on what's going on on the streets. I would like to see people on the streets more to get a feeling for that or at least get information from the streets. Um, I don't disagree with you. I, I think when you're trying to represent the people in your ward and the bigger piece, it becomes hard. But I, I also go back to the fact this is why you're a city councillor at the end of the day. You're a city councillor because you're looking at the city holistically as a whole and what's going to benefit us overall. I think back to the hubs. I think the hubs are great. I think the hubs are badly needed. My big push, again, as someone who lives in Blackfriars, who lives and breathes the downtown, I do not want to see 15 of them in the downtown in Old East Village. Mm -hmm. It's time that everybody in this city took a little piece of the responsibility to deal with this issue. And it's not only that part of it. It's and we talked about this at the news conference that they had at City Hall. Homelessness is no longer just downtown Old East. No, no, no. There are not. people who are homeless all over the city. Like, yeah. just yes. just take a drive, you know, in the West End or North End. And and this is maybe a different rant for a different day. I think I, I feel always very uncomfortable when I see someone sort of standing on an island at a busy intersection with a sign. Yes. I'm I'm just thinking we're just waiting for something tragic yeah. to yeah. happen with this. Yeah. But you don't just see that downtown. No, Do it, you? Not at it's, all. It's no. everywhere. Yeah. And, and it's, it, that is exactly it. There are so many safety issues that are involved with that. I mean, yep. I, I'm just it, waiting. And, and like, I, just, I, I don't want to speak it into existence, obviously. I hope it never happens. But I'm waiting for the time when someone trips on that island and falls in the yeah. traffic. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's, and, 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 and I'm just, I, so I'm always just so slow when I'm approaching those intersections because like, okay, I don't want yeah. me to be the car that's here that day. Yeah. yeah. And, but the, and, and those traffic islands are not designed, obviously, for someone to be standing on them mm-hmm. at 5 p.m. on a Friday. So, yeah. oh, I know. Um, but yeah, this, the thing like I'm all over the city at all all different times and I can say that in the northwest there is most definitely people that are um, living in the rough and we need services for them there too they might not necessarily also want to be in the downtown for some downtown core for some as well they find the downtown core a safety issue I mean particularly if you are a female and so you do see we need to have hubs and we need to have services throughout the city and I, I just want to go back to saying it if we are going to think about where we're spending the money and how we're doing it, there should be accountability. We should have a system for doing that, but we can't uh, single out and target yes. those that are helping people right yeah. now. That, that's the issue here is, is it was not well thought out. They, it was very clearly targeted to one, towards one clearly. organization. And there was no real outcome that was desired beyond just pulling the funding. Like, right. it, this is the thing. Yes, you that think, was it. If you're, if you're frustrated with the fact that there are too many social services in, in, in Old East and you think that's causing a problem in the community, I think there's a fair conversation to be had there. But we're going to take 325K away from safe space is not solving that problem. It, no. It most yeah. definitely it might actually is make not. it worse. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, yeah. So, and that's where, you know, and another one of my 
big challenges right now is just what happened to the transitional housing program that we had over COVID? Remember the winter mm-hmm. yeah. housing program? They, mm-hmm. they set up temporary housing in a couple parking lots and parks. Where did that disappear to? So a lot of that, I, and, and I might be, I, a lot of that came from provincial funding. I think that provincial funding dried up over time. Um, but I think that there, again, I think there were opportunities for it. Again, though, back to your point, you pick the areas, yeah. what do you get? You, you constantly will get an influx of neighbors from that area who, who have problems. And, and I, think, I think this is the challenge. I think it's a multifaceted approach that you have to take, recognizing full well that when you put these services on, it is going to impact those communities. How do we try to lessen that impact at the end of the day? I think, I think if we don't come up with some solutions, more so you're going to see a real negative impact towards it. And, and I get it. I get that people in Byron probably don't want to hub there. But when I walk out that way on uh, Thames Valley Parkway, under the bridge going into Byron, there's a tent city now. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. why do we look and say we need to bring those people downtown to give them service? When it goes back, Carol, and you hit the nail on the head, most of them will tell you who aren't in the downtown, I do not come there because it's not safe for me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... That's a challenge. And and the other thing I've learned is a lot of these people have nearby family in Very these much. neighborhoods. Like yeah. it, it's not like these people are just airdropped out of nowhere into these places. It's they're actually trying to live in proximity to where their social network was or still currently is. Yeah. And I think we need to respect people's freedom of movement. We can't just say, well, you know, sorry, you're tough out of luck. You got to come downtown if you need support. Like it's yeah. we need to support people where they are. Yeah. And that's that's yeah. the biggest challenge. Yeah, that's fair. Um, before we wrap up on on this subject, I do want to note about what the you know the mayor is is in Ottawa right now, uh, and he's talking with folks about the the health and and, and homelessness conversation. And he had a great interview last night on CBC. Like, yes, yeah, he was on he was on Power and Politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, yeah. and he sort of laid out the case pretty good. I thought. I think you're right, AJ. Um, they, I know. I heard Lynn Livingston, the city manager, say that she wants to have some of these hubs set up uh, in places in the community by the fall. So that's huh. that's that's. I think that's that's aggressive. I hope that they can accomplish it. But how much of a difference will will that make? Do you think once we start actually seeing the results of the the health and homelessness fund here? Or, that's hard to say yeah, because until we again, actually see it. Yeah, yeah. Like it, we just don't know. We don't know what what's coming down the pipe. I mean. Again, um, and a lot no can change. Over, yet. Yeah, like this is the thing. I Waterloo Region, they're starting the new Herbsville, uh, better better tent city, whatever you want to call it. We still don't know if it's actually going to work. Yeah, and it is on the outskirts of the city, and it is only one site. And there is the original better tent city that's now operating in sort of Dumfries and uh, Wilmot there, but we we just don't know, and it. And my other problem is with this aggressive timeline is, well, it's just going to become politically expedient to locate these wherever you can. And the problem is it's going to take time to convince Byron and the Byron counselor and the folks that have the phone numbers of MPs and MPPs to allow them to put a neighborhood resource center in Byron. And I don't think at a timeline by the fall, we're going to see a, a resource center in Byron It'll be on the edge of Byron in sort of Warncliffe. And that's where I think there's going to be a mm-hmm. real problem there of trying to meet the 
the challenge in a timely manner, but also do it fair and distribute these resources across the city. I mean, everyone pays tax as, as everyone's contributing to the city. Everyone's got to pull their weight every once in a while. I yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a, and I think that's a great way to do it. And I think where it's going to be really interesting is going to come down to those council votes. Here's eight. Here's where we're going to put them. Let's see who's willing to step up and mm-hmm. say, yeah, you know what? I've talked to a lot of the people in my neighborhood. I've explained it to them. This is what we're doing. At the end of the day, I need to support this because it's for the greater good of the city as a whole. I also think that there's a balance there on this, and, and this is going to be one of my takes. September, I think, is aggressive. I'm going to be honest. I think if we go through a year and don't see anything, there is going to be a real problem. I think mm-hmm. I think yep. it is going yep. to be something that is really going to come back. Because people are going to say, oh, yeah, what about that $25 million? Why, why is that yeah. not doing anything? 100%. Yeah. I yeah. think yeah. that, and, and I think the other thing is right now, and I understand why, but let's be honest. Right now, the political will of this city, this is all you hear about. They don't yeah. talk about anything else. Yeah. They're only talking about homelessness at the end of the day. To the average Londoner, that's their focus. Yeah. If after a year they haven't seen anything on that focus, it's going to start to come back. Oh, yeah. There will there will be a lot of anger. I mean, yes. this was all people wanted to talk about a year ago when there That's was right. the provincial election. And now we've got this situation where, you know, unfortunately, six people lost their lives last week. And we don't want to see that accelerate. And we've got to get something no. in place before next winter. Uh, we need to make sure that it's not, you know, opening so cl- like late that um, people are already dealing with freezing temperatures and then that it's like we just saw closing too early when it's still cold and then we yeah. have tragic situations with fires yeah. so you know we the city is not going to be happy the citizens are not going to be happy if they don't see any move quickly on this so yeah and yeah. i think one way to solve some of these resident concerns about where these locate and then of course there there will be spillover effects you yeah. you just can't not have it but you can manage them appropriately and make people feel like they're heard and feel like action is being taken on their concerns. And I think we really need to think about, yeah, it's great to locate these centers here, but who are the municipal staff at the end of the day that are going to pick up the phone that isn't just the 20 bylaw enforcement officers we have for the entire city and actually respond to that complaint in a timely manner? And perhaps it is looking at the Main Street Ambassadors program a bit more and realizing the success that from my opinion, that's been in the core area so far and expanding that to, you know, these neighborhood resource centers of actually introducing the community to the people that are responsible at the end of the day for resolving any challenges that emerge in those local areas. I think once you put a face to government, people are a lot more reasonable and aren't as aggressive with their administration. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think too, the longer they're there, the more they blend in. And I'm going to use a prime example. Right around the corner from me, I have a community house. Now, I've been there for, I've been there for 30 years, but that community house has been there for 25 years. I'll be honest, it's just, it's just part of the neighborhood now. People Mm -hmm. go past. And again, that to me is what these things should become. Mm -hmm. These shouldn't become something that's housing 100 people. These need to become something that's housing 10 people. And those 10 people, as they work through that process, to get them into stable housing, to get them. But I think it can become that. And I mm-hmm. think I think communities won't be as negative about them if they're not huger facilities that are yeah. bringing in a large group of people. Yeah. And there needs to be some 
serious thought it put into the path out. That's yeah. the yeah. thing. This Absolutely. can't just be we're going to solve the problem to get these people indoors for the winter and good luck, you're on your own yeah. next summer. One Absolutely. You know, yeah. we, we have to get these people in a stable housing or stable care. Like this is the other conversation we need to have is it is very clear that we swung the pendulum way too far yeah. back when we decided to deinstitutionalize care completely and that there needs to be a conversation again of people getting the right supports and the right help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not saying that we just throw these people in a jail. No, yeah. Throw yeah. Away yeah. The, that's no, the worst possible. Yeah. That yeah. is yeah. the worst possible yeah. situation. Yeah. And unfortunately, that is what is happening for yeah. some of these people yep. because yeah. they don't get the care that they need. They commit violent acts and then it's the justice system that has yeah. to resolve it. 100%. Uh, last thing, as we mentioned the justice system I want to talk about, uh, the premiers come out this week and said, hey, you know what? What if we were to not have a post-secondary requirement for police officers? Policing, I think, is a more challenging job today than it has ever been in and our society's complex. history. More yeah. complex, more challenging. Pick a word. It's more. Uh, I don't think this is a good idea. Does anyone <laughs> disagree with me? <laughs> I'm going I'm to, I'm going to, I'm not going to disagree. What I'm going to say is, I don't think a post-secondary degree, unless it's in very specific fields, before attending police college, is any more valuable than not having that degree. Sure. What I will say is the problem is that we have no specialized training leading up to a three-month stint in Mm -hmm. basic recruitment. Let's let's be clear about what the Ontario Police College is. It is a stripped-down version of what we put soldiers through at a basic recruitment level. It is drilling, it is marching, it is learning how to fire a weapon, and you have a couple hours of classroom instruction on de-escalation. What we have seen in many other more advanced countries than ours on the policing front is that policing is actually a four-year degree that is conducted at universities that are specified. So from my perspective, this is terrible and really it's just what we've heard is that there's recruitment challenges i wonder why for police officers because it is a thankless job now and it is completely completely out of control of what they're being asked to do on a day-to-day basis so of course nobody wants to do it now get rid of the post-secondary education requirement and any boneheaded bully that is coming out of high school is going to look at that and go, I can make $100,000 in four years? Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. And this is the problem. And so I think we have to have a conversation about policing education. And I am not the expert here, but I think a lot of people understand that someone only going to school for three months for a complex job like that isn't going to do a very good job. Yeah, it's ludicrous. So when when I saw that, I thought, are you kidding me? I mean, the the requirements on them right now are so huge that it should be more of a, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be four years, but even two years, just so you could take classes in psychology or some kind of medical um, uh, training or something. Or forensics. Forensics, anything. You mean, honestly, it's ridiculous to think. I mean, I have a kid that's about to go into grade 12. And just the thought that there are these kids (laughs) that are going to finish, go into a 
you know, three months of training and then be and out then on they the street. And got a badge and a gun. Exactly. Like, no, this is not okay. I mean, and then there's the wider <laughs> issue here. I mean, he kept keeps saying, oh, there'll be more boots on the ground. Those aren't the boots that I want on the ground. I'm not dealing with not, this situation. Not your son? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not your son with a gun? <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I, I really think about this in terms of the other issues we have to deal with. You're making it tuition free. All right. We are having a nursing crisis. How about you make nursing school free? Or how about you Get rid damn of that just tuition. increase the number of nursing spaces? This yeah. is the yeah. thing I was on about the last one. Yeah. yeah. We have not expanded nursing or medical programs in 25 years in the province of Ontario. We are now going to get a new medical school in Brampton because the province wants to cheap out on actually building a hospital that Brampton desperately needs. Mm. But that will be the first time in 25 years. And I completely agree. It should be tuition free for nurses, for doctors and for police officers. But police officers shouldn't just be going to school for three months. Yeah, certainly not. And (laughs) even there are police officers that have, you've heard them on the radio say, we also don't agree with this. This is a really bad idea. (laughs) I I think that's it. And and I'm going to speak now as the non-PhD sitting in the room. Okay. (laughs) So so I I want to say first, I I was really happy that the PhD said that, yeah, maybe this is not what we need. My my big issue is, is is a couple of things. One is the coping skills you need to be an officer today. And I don't think as a 17 or 18 year old, you have those coping skills developed. So I think you need that experience. I think further to that though, and and this may go back to what AJ said, I've always believed in a two-tier system. I think we need a training system for officers on the street who aren't carrying weapons, who are going door to door, who are doing the foot patrol, who are mic'd in, knowing full well that when they pick up the phone or buzz to make that call, they will get the assistance there that they need. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, we're ending up, I think, with people in these roles that are incapable of doing these roles. It goes back to what you said, $100,000 job, I'll take that $100,000 job. And I remember one of the officers that I knew, and and again, full disclosure, my brother-in-law's a cop and my niece is a cop. But a gentleman I knew just finished up after 35 years, and he said, John, when I started, he said, if I saw a dead body a year, I'd be, I'd be surprised. He said, mm-hmm. now I see one once a day when I'm out there. Mm-hmm. That's the difference, and it's the ability for these people to cope. And you'll hear from chiefs saying trying to keep people on the street is really mm-hmm. difficult because of the psychological impacts that this is having. Mm-hmm. We need these people to be prepared before they go out. But I would love to see some form of some form of system that we have people and we're looking at them and saying, that guy's going to make a good cop. That's who we want. We have other people who are saying, you know what? This is going to be your role. You're, yeah. you're not good because you, you're right. Young guys filled with piss and vinegar going out saying, this is what I've always wanted. I've wanted to carry a gun all my life is not what we want on our streets. Yeah, and, and, and what comes back to you to me, and, and, and we've talked about this in this podcast before, is uh, we need to have a situation where there are someone who is not a police officer that can respond to mental health calls. Yeah. That yeah. would take a lot of work off of police officers, and police officers don't want to be responding to mental health calls. Um, Neither and, should and they not, be responding to car collisions. Sure, yeah. Correct. MVCs should be dealt with by people who are actually trained in assessing MVCs yeah. and managing traffic. Well, and that's it. And when you look at the frustration, and Carol, you probably got this when you're going door to door. When you feel impacted and you make that call for 911, 
it is it's monumental to you at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. When yeah. an officer doesn't come for four days, yeah, it's very very frustrating. But when that call is somebody stole the bikes out of my garage and I'm calling nine one one, yeah, we'll get around to it. I don't think it needs to be a guy coming to your door that is prepared to pull a gun on your behalf. It needs to be somebody to take a report. Yeah. I'm going to take the report. I'm going to file it for you. You know what? Maybe a little bit of empathy in there to say, mm-hmm. look, I'm really sorry this happened. Here's some suggestions of what you can do. But I do think that we need to get better at the service component and what those individuals in that service component actually need to do. Yeah. So I did hear this at the door. There was many of these incidences where people said, you know, even in my neighborhood where they called 911, that they were, their house was getting broken into and they waited three hours. So clearly we do have a situation where we are lacking services and, you know, we need people to come for those situations. But we could be shifting our resources a little bit. I mean, in just that one election a year ago, I had to call the cops four times for four different issues that came up, which is insane that you would have to do that each time it was necessary that it was a police officer. But still, um, you know, we need to make sure that we have people that are coming to the situation that are prepared to deal mentally with what they're going to see because as you said i mean a lot of the police officers that are there they're they're going to have post-traumatic stress disorder as well for the things that they're having to deal with and if you only have training for three months and you think you're going to go out there and you're going to see a dead body and no access to counseling and no access to counseling and, and no you know opportunities for um dealing with critical thinking or any of that that you're going to need i mean it's a recipe for disaster yeah i think in a perfect my perfect world and a lot of people's perfect worlds are different and that's a good thing that's why (laughs) that's why our policies need to change um because i think we know that the current system is not working on a public safety side yeah it's not working for ems because they can't offload patients to the hospital yeah they're under resourced we know it's not working for fire we know it's not working for police and we need to have a real conversation of you call one number in this province 911 why is it not one agency at the local level that is deciding how to respond to that problem with the various resources that it yeah. has mm-hmm. at its disposal? And why is that not under one management structure? You know, let's use the military term, one command structure. Yeah. Um, if we want to professionalize public safety service, why is it not one yeah. service? Yeah. I think that's... Uh that's a very fair point. You know what? We're going to leave it there just because uh, we've, we're have we running up against time here and they need a studio that we're in. So thank you very much to John and to AJ and for Carol and to Carol for, for coming in this week. Thank you very much to you for listening to, downloading, reviewing, subscribing to all that fun stuff with the Craig Needles podcast, which of course you could find at londonnewstoday.ca, classicrock981.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. The Craig Needles podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.